There's one word associated with cancer to give us all hope. It's survivor. Anyone who's been through cancer knows that at times being a survivor is every bit as tough as it sounds. I was 30 when I had surgery for a melanoma. I'm now 72. I have an ongoing relationship with the hospital. I am being closely monitored for some cysts that still remain in my body. Did you know that if you've been diagnosed with cancer, you are a survivor? And as you've probably found out, there's quite a bit to it. Very few of us can walk away from cancer without having been changed significantly in some way. And to be clear, not all of those changes are negative. At 30, I had one son. I've since had another and I've watched them both grow up into be lovely men. I've had a full career in education. I was there to support my wife when she died of melanoma at 60. I think I've become a better person. There are more than a million of us cancer survivors living in Australia today. Most of us getting on with our lives, grateful, relieved and happy to be alive. But we also know that cancer can have ongoing impacts on our lives. And sometimes it's the side effects of treatment. Sometimes physical, emotional or financial concerns. And of course, the ever-present fear of cancer relapse. The Australian Cancer Survivorship Centre is a multidisciplinary team that's based at the Peter McCallum Hospital in Melbourne. They work to improve outcomes for cancer survivors. Some of their work is research. They also spend time working with the health professionals that treat cancer and have lots of information available for survivors, carers and friends. If you're a survivor newly diagnosed or with your cancer far, far behind you. This podcast will let you know what's being done to improve life for cancer survivors. Dr. Michael Jefford is Director of the Australian Cancer Survivorship Centre. Michael, why is looking at cancer survivorship so important? I think that it's this growing realisation that when people have had their cancer experience, it's not all over. People have lasting consequences of their cancer diagnosis and their cancer treatment. Unfortunately, I think that our healthcare system is very much geared towards diagnosis and treatment and a realisation that it's leaving people with persisting symptoms and unmet needs and we need to do a better job of caring for people after they've completed their treatment. What has moved you to do this above and beyond what your role as an oncologist is? I think it's the acknowledgement that people have issues, concerns and that we can do a better job and that we can see that we're making incremental progress. It's rewarding to know that year on year, things get better. And I think that over a five or 10 year period, you can see that there's been significant shifts in care in Victoria and across Australia and internationally. And and I think it's nice to be part of that and know that we're providing better care for survivors and people are having a better experience. Also working at the Australia Cancer Survivorship Centre is scientific researcher, Carolina Lissy. The goal of our research is really to improve care and outcomes for cancer survivors, but it boils down to understanding the experiences of people as they move through the cancer journey and looking at where people have outcomes or experiences that aren't so great, why this might be the case, and what care can we provide to improve this? So how can we implement changes in the healthcare setting to give people a better experience? One of the things that really moved me when I was getting treated for cancer is that definition of a survivor. And you're a survivor on the very first day that you discover you have cancer. 
Yeah, and I think that that arose really from an advocacy push. It was some patients and survivors going, why do we have to wait until we're two or three or five years after completing treatment until we're considered a survivor and we can get on with the rest of our life? And I think it recognises too that I guess that this has been a more inclusive term. And also in saying that, that it's a term that's not intended to exclude anybody. We perhaps have traditionally thought of survivors as people being disease-free, and we recognise that people who are living with cancer, who might be living with cancer for many years, have common issues too, and also have the same concerns as people who might be disease-free. They struggle with physical symptoms and emotional concerns, practical issues like financial concerns, getting back to work and study. So I think that we're better off with a more inclusive definition. And to recognise too that it's not just individual people with a diagnosis, but their family members and carers and, and others around them. How important is it to be able to find out what's going to work for the next generation of cancer survivors? It's key to everything that we do. So we really want to understand the experiences that people have and the outcomes that people have, which is fundamental in being able to address the issues that people experience and, and improve survivorship and improve the care that we give people. Some of the work that we have done has been around identifying people's most commonly reported unmet needs and understanding what their experiences are. What we found is that people do experience ongoing issues. So some of our work that's looked at survivors five years out from their diagnosis has found you know quite substantial proportions of people still experiencing issues and some of these things are around fear that their cancer is going to come back or feelings of uncertainty about the future so a lot of these kind of psychological or emotional issues that might be ongoing for for a long time there's also physical the physical side of being a cancer survivor so people often reporting fatigue and ongoing issues with pain or trouble sleeping for people that have had certain treatments when they're younger, loss of fertility and early menopause and things like that. It's really important that we identify what these issues are so that we can target or create and target interventions to be able to help people manage these ongoing issues and just live the best life that they can. As an oncologist, a lot of people that are going through the treatment are kind of surprised when the treatment ends that they're cut loose and expected just to go out and carry on as if nothing has happened. It's very common. We know from the literature, we know from clinical experience that people, uh, I guess, have quite varied reactions to finishing treatment. And lots of people are obviously delighted to have finished treatment. But sometimes simultaneously, people commonly report kind of feeling a bit lost and abandoned and and kind of dealing with their cancer diagnosis and treatment in the period after it, when they've actually got some time to reflect on it. It's, a, it's very varied for people. And I think that a lot of people are so focused on the treatment and getting through the treatment and having radiation or chemotherapy and the like, that it's uh, it makes sense to focus on that. But when people have completed treatment, then it's that combination of uh, partly having an opportunity to reflect, but also the sort of space to realise what's happened. And then also with that, perhaps withdrawal of some of the support that's provided professionally, and sometimes a withdrawal of some of the support that's provided from family and friends, because there's often that expectation that, you know, you should just get back to life as you were before. And I think that no one would believe that life returns quite to 
how it was before. But I wonder if it's if it's not a bit like the bushfires that we experienced in Australia that were so devastating and we just threw everything at them to get the fires out. And now it sort of seems that the new cycle has overtaken the bushfires, but the people that are still dealing with houses that need to be rebuilt or farms that need to be restocked you know it's it's not over it's it's a long way from over and in many ways people would consider themselves survivors of the bushfires and changed by it and in many different ways they have to continue to make a new life i guess that as you say that the eyes of most australians aren't in that direction and and many people would expect people to recover and And in some ways people do and in other ways people are changed. In the way that we have worked our way through finding effective treatments for the disease that causes this in the first place, is it possible to find ways to help people? I think undoubtedly and I guess that that's very much what our work's focused on. And I think to an extent it's about preparing people and letting people know how they might feel after they've completed treatment and thinking about the post-treatment phase early in the same way that if we were seeing somebody at diagnosis and thinking about fertility preservation, we need to think about that early, not after they've completed the treatment. And in a similar way, I think we'd recommend that we think about other issues like if people are thinking about continuing to work or go back to work after finishing treatment, we need to be thinking about that as early as we can to make that as effective as it can be. Likewise, lots of people become more physically unwell or more frail or deconditioned as a result of treatment. But if we can keep people exercising and keep people as well as they can be during their treatment, again, it helps with that sort of post-treatment recovery. So I think that there's lots of things we can do so people have a better experience in the post-treatment phase. And and much of that could happen earlier on than it is doing. The Australian Cancer Survivorship Centre, which is based at Peter Mac, really has three broad areas of focus. And, and we do have a major focus on trying to provide better information and support for survivors. We know that in terms of providing better models of care, then we need to do a lot of education for health professionals. And, and that can be medical nursing, allied health, and working in the cancer area, but also people working in the community. And so GPs tell us that they don't know much about the issues that survivors can experience. We're keen to try and get that information and education out for GPs and community-based practice nurses and the like. And then the Survivorship Centre also provides some leadership and guidance around survivorship. So we're keen to share what we know about different models of care so that others can implement that. And in Victoria, there's been a big commitment to improving survivorship care. The Department of Health and Human Services have funded projects throughout the state for close to 10 years, looking at better ways of providing better care and and support for survivors. Some of that's been dealing with symptom issues, like dealing with the worry about cancer coming back, altered thinking that many people report after chemotherapy, as well as dealing with sleep problems. There's been projects that are looking at trying to improve exercise and improving diet, and then quite a lot of projects that are trying to adopt a shared care model of care, so sharing care between the patient and their family and their GP and their oncology team. So there's lots of work going on, and and as I said earlier, we're certainly making some shifts and some changes, and, and I think that there's much more awareness of the issues that survivors experience and the need to have better models of care now than five years ago and much more than 10 years ago. 
Carolina, you actually have some survivorship care plans for some of the more common types of cancers, so for prostate, breast and colorectal cancer? Yeah, that's right. The ACSC team, uh, I think it was a year or two ago now, did a project that was around developing these survivorship care plans for survivors of early breast, prostate and colorectal cancer. So it might sound kind of relatively simple to do, but a lot of work went into it because what goes into a survivorship care plan really does depend on the type of cancer that a person's had and the type of treatment that they've received. What we ended up doing was compiling a pretty comprehensive list with experts to identify what survivorship issues people might experience based on their diagnosis and their treatment. So it was really very specific based on if you've had this particular type of chemo, this particular type of surgery. So really right down to a specific diagnosis and treatment. And people can hop online and access this survivorship care plan generator and do it themselves. So hop online and put in what kind of treatment they've had and what cancer they've had and they will be given a survivorship care plan based on the information that they've put in. So a survivorship care plan typically includes a diagnostic summary, a summary of the person's diagnosis and often who they're treating doctors were and contact details for those people. And then it will typically have a list of things to look out for, side effects that they might experience based on their cancer or their treatment. And also longer term, what we call late or long term effects that might arise, you know, a bit further down the track, uh, different symptoms or issues that they might experience, they might be worried about. So how to recognize those and perhaps what they can do. And really importantly, a survivorship care plan will also have things that people should look out for that might indicate a recurrence or just something that they need to really go back and call their provider about if they're worried. That's the basic information that should be on there, as well as information about how to stay well. So if someone is a smoker, for example, or isn't actively engaging in exercise, there might be information there about the benefits of a healthy lifestyle. So giving up smoking, eating well, exercising, uh, reducing alcohol intake and things like that. I do remember at the finish of my treatment feeling a little bit lost about what to do next and can remember talking to my GP and he said, oh, I can put together a healthcare plan, but cancer's not counted as a chronic condition. So I'll have to use your asthma which had obviously nothing to do with the cancer as a, a catalyst for putting together a, a health care plan. Pleasingly, that is shifting. And I think that there's much more recognition that cancer and survivorship can be a long-term issue and that that means that it needs to be considered like other chronic conditions like arthritis, diabetes or asthma, and that we need to see it in a similar light. And, and in many of those conditions, there's a component of people being educated and self-managing, managing their own diabetes, managing their own asthma, and that could happen too for cancer survivors. And similarly, there are conditions where there's important lifestyle components in people who might have asthma, then obviously important not to smoke. For people with diabetes, diet and exercise is really important. And likewise, for cancer survivors, we know that these health behaviours are also really important. If you can stop smoking, then you can reduce your risk of cancer recurrence. If you can reduce alcohol, then you can reduce the risk of cancer recurrence. And growing evidence that exercise may reduce the chance of cancer coming back, as well as having lots of other broad health benefits as well, and also benefits for other illnesses, you know, for heart condition, diabetes, etc. 
I think part of it as well is to go through a really intense cancer treatment is a lot of yielding of any sort of control. Your oncology team wants to know anything alternative that you're taking or doing your radiation team again wants control. It's a wonderful day when you finally get control back, but then you can also be left feeling, okay, what do I do now? Yeah. And I think that that is the healthcare system. I don't know if controlling is the right word, but it's probably, it tends to do things to people rather than supporting people to do them themselves. And I think in providing improved survivorship care, we recognise that part of that is going to be giving people skills to manage their own health, be in charge of their follow-up and be more skilled and empowered, which is not for the healthcare system to be neglectful or to fail to provide care, but to recognise that people can self-manage to a large extent. And, and I think that that's absolutely true if you think about how people self-manage their diabetes and their asthma then we need to try and give people what they need to be able to self-manage to the limit that they're able to and they want to in their survivorship care. The closer you are to having finished your treatment, the more likely it is that you'd be worried about symptoms returning. We have looked at the symptoms that people experience one, three and five years after treatment. And that's for people that have experienced the five most common cancer types, breast, prostate, colorectal, melanoma and lymphoma. The symptoms that we've looked at are more around sort of quality of life issues, such as problems with mobility and problems with pain, anxiety and depression. And we certainly do see that people experience those quite close to their diagnosis, so at that one-year time point, but substantial numbers of people still experiencing those at five years. I think fatigue is one of the, the bigger ones that people experience. I think for breast cancer survivors, about half of women who have completed treatment for breast cancer still experience fatigue up to five years later. So that can be quite troubling for people. Not so much a symptom that would indicate a recurrence, but it can be a, a symptom that people find bothersome that interferes with their ability to kind of get on with life and just enjoy life. And I think concurrent with that, there is um, people, a lot of people that experience trouble sleeping. So that could be associated with anxiety that people might be feeling and we certainly do see that substantial numbers of people um, again about 50% of people at five years do have fear about their cancer returning. Some of the symptoms probably do get better particularly for symptoms that are related to treatment the things like nausea or altered taste and bowel dysfunction and hair loss then chances are they will all recover reasonably soon after treatment there are symptoms that seem to be quite persistent and so when we asked people in victoria who were diagnosed with their cancer five years ago still quite a large proportion of people are reporting worries about cancer coming back that were quite bothersome for them as well as difficulties with sleep and sometimes with pain. So that's, I think, why we do need to be much more aware of the fact that people can have long-standing symptoms and we need to ask people about these symptoms so that we can try and help people because there are interventions that can improve problems with nighttime sleep, that can improve pain management, can reduce the worries associated with cancer recurrence. We can't lose sight of the other people that are part of the cancer journey, and that is our friends, our family, our partners, the people that care for us. Again, the healthcare system doesn't necessarily 
gives the same amount of attention to carers as it does to the person with a diagnosis. But we know that carers, family members can have significant unmet needs and can have the same levels of anxiety and depression as people directly affected with a cancer diagnosis. So we do need to do a better job of attending to the other person in the room or at home. And I think that there's good data to say that the carers are also feeling very uncertain. They're very worried. They have the same levels of worry about the future and, and what's going to happen next and worry about potential for cancer to come back. So we do need to do more for carers as well. And I think that everybody's different though, aren't they? And that there'll be other family members who go, well, you know, of the person who's finished their cancer, well, it's done now. Aren't you just going back to normal? I guess everybody's different, but we have to be able to to recognise that the, the need for support doesn't disappear when treatment finishes and that everybody's different and that we try and make sure that survivors do get support after finishing their treatment and it doesn't drop away. But we also attend to carers and family members and make sure that they're okay and that their needs are being met too. One of the main unmet needs that cancer survivors themselves express is worry about their partner's family and friends so from the carer's perspective but also from the survivor's perspective it's an additional burden they do worry about the impact of their own diagnosis on those around them so yeah it really is an important area to focus on. Australian survivorship care how does it stack up against what's being done internationally? And that is something that we are actively working on. We are working quite closely with the Department of Health and Human Services here in Victoria. And I will say that the, the recent cancer plan was just released last week and a big focus on that in that cancer plan. And one of the focuses of our work is to understand exactly what quality survivorship care is and how can we measure it so that will enable us to benchmark the care that we provide within our state with what's happening around the country and internationally. It is important that we have a way of assessing outcomes for survivors. We want to make sure that people are living well. In terms of how Australia is going with survivorship care internationally, I think that we're doing really well. There's a lot of focus on survivorship and there's a desire to make sure that people have the information and support they need and that they have better care and better outcomes. And there's a lot of work going on in Australia, as well as quite a lot of research. And And there's no doubt that Australia punches above its weight in terms of cancer research in general and survivorship research as well. I think that we're doing well. We absolutely look to what's going on in other countries to say, how can we learn from each other? What's going on that's working really well in other areas and what can we bring back to Australia? It's good to be aware of what's going on and to collaborate. Evidence from Australia shows us that people who are from culturally or linguistically diverse backgrounds do have poorer survivorship outcomes. They tend to be less satisfied with the care that they receive. They have greater unmet needs. They have often lower quality of life and they don't participate in clinical trials and research as much as people who do speak English or were born in Australia. And one of the other things that we've also noticed is that people, there is a lack of information available and resources available for people in their native languages. When you think about Australia as being very multicultural, that represents a huge slice of our population of people that speak other languages and were born in different countries. I'm one of them myself, and it's a massive area of needs. To address that, we are doing some ongoing research at the moment to try to dig down a bit deeper into some of those 
areas of disparity, but we've also developed resources for people that speak eight of the, the more common languages that we see in Australia. And so this resource is about living well after cancer, and it's been translated into eight languages from the English with help from the Cancer Council, and that's also available on our website. So I'd encourage people to have a look at those. People who are sexually or gender diverse, which is another way of saying um, people who identify as LGBT. IQ+. We do also see that there are some potentially some differences in experiences and outcomes for this group because there's unfortunately not a lot of research available for Australia regarding this population and cancers. Sadly there are still experiences of people being discriminated against or receiving care that they feel they might be assumed to be heterosexual or assumed to be one gender or another which might make them feel quite uncomfortable or they might also find they ask for certain information or they want information say about their sexuality or their treatment or rehab after cancer that that information isn't really available and a lot of it is geared towards people who identify as heterosexual. Thankfully, that is starting to change and there are some resources that are starting to come out that can support people who identify as sexually or gender diverse, but there's still a a really long way to go. Resources that are available so far largely focus on gay and bisexual men who have prostate cancer and the Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia, or PCFA, have put together some really great resources for gay and bisexual men with prostate cancer. So I'd encourage anyone who fits into that group to look at those, but there's really not much or anything available for people who have experienced other cancer types or for women who identify as lesbian or bisexual, or for transgender and gender diverse people. So a long way to go there. Cancer just doesn't discriminate really, does it? No, (laughs) no it doesn't. And there's a complexity of needs that people have. People might say, oh, why are their needs different? But there are very distinct needs around, say, people who have cancer that affects their sexuality. So the, the rehab kind of that's available might not be appropriate for them. And people who maybe are perceived as being not heterosexual and not cisgender might also be not denied fertility access to fertility preservation, but maybe assumed that they won't be interested in it. So that's some of the stuff that mm. our research is starting to uncover and things that we really do need to address. Michael, the other group who are very badly affected for a long time with cancer are the very young people that get cancer and have to work through cancer treatment. Yeah, look, I think that the uh, probably the survivorship field really came about because we've seen such remarkable improvements in treatment and outcomes for children treated for cancer, such that the vast majority of children are cured but now live with the consequences of their treatment. And we know that, as you might expect, if your treatment as an infant or as a child, then your body's still growing and the chemotherapy or the radiation can affect every organ and affects your ability to grow and the like. So we know that for many people who are treated for cancer as young people, as children or adolescents, they can have a broad range of consequences of their cancer treatments. And so for many people, they do need to have quite long-term follow-up to check for a broad range of potential health concerns and be linked in with a broad range of professionals to help people to be as well as they possibly can be, recognising that for some of our very young cancer patients, they might have another 80 years of life ahead of them. And you want that to be a great life ahead of them too? 
A hundred percent. And not just concern about physical issues, but, you know, making sure that people can study and work and have good relationships and be psychologically well and have a happy long, long life. Oncologist Dr Michael Jefford, Director of the Australian Cancer Survivorship Centre and Carolina Lissy, Scientific Researcher at the Survivorship Centre. If you're listening to this because you are a cancer survivor or you know one, why not check out the Australian Cancer Survivorship website at Peter McCullum. Whether you've just been diagnosed, you're in the depths of treatment or you've been a survivor for many years, it's worth looking into how survivorship could look for you. There's no stronger incentive than cancer to live your life to the very best of your ability. You can find an online link to the Cancer Survivorship Centre at Peter McCullum Hospital on the Cancer Survivor Guide show notes. And the website holds lots of information about some of the side effects of your treatment as well as support that's available for survivors. And there's also information that your health practitioner can access for better ways of providing care and support for survivors. If you're seeking more information, the Cancer Survivor Guide podcast has information about what it's like to go through radiation treatment, explaining more about surgery for cancer, and even talking about oncology and how to avoid some of the worst side effects. The Cancer Survivor Guide has quite a few podcasts in our stable now and you can find them online and on iTunes. I'm Penny Johnston. If you're just starting on your survivorship journey, welcome and join the now millions of us around the world who have learned to live again after a cancer diagnosis. 